0: Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report Podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today, I'm joined by Jacob Rudner. Jacob, how are you doing today?
1: Fantastic, Ethan. Good to be back on the pod as always. Sure is. I'm also joined by Carson Breber. Carson, how are you doing today? I am
0: excellent, Ethan. Thank you. That sounds great. And as always, joined by Chris Cartman as well. Chris, how are you doing today?
2: Ethan, have you seen the weather outside? Every single week, it's getting better. I We talked about that. Listen, it's October in Arizona.
0: It's taking a little
2: time. I just would advise everyone to go and check out the sunsets in the Phoenix area this month. They are about to be glorious.
0: There was one yesterday. It was my whole apartment was orange and it was awesome after the sunset because it was just
2: streaming through the windows. You see, it's already happening. Okay. People get outside, take a walk, enjoy the weather. Love what's going on out there. It is brilliant
0: weather, and it was also a brilliant time in Pasadena for ASU as they won on the road against UCLA, forty-two to twenty-three. ASU is now four and one on the season and two and zero in Pac-12 play. Jacob, we'll go to you first. What were your initial takeaways from this win?
1: Yeah, re- really impressive play from Arizona State. Uh, generally, I would say that there were definitely some mistakes. Uh, in the first half, particularly, uh, and and really zeroing in on ASU special teams was where they made those mistakes. Uh, And we've kind of talked about that a couple times on on previous podcasts after previous games. But uh, in a general sense, that really got cleaned up in the second half. And we saw what was, in my opinion, easily Arizona State's best offensive performance of the year. They they connected on five of their six longest plays from scrimmage in the game. Uh, Jaden Daniels played his best game. He completed Uh, you know, he, he, he completed over 250 yards passing on fewer than 20 passing attempts for the first time in his career. Uh, it was just, it was a great overall performance. And then the last thing that I'll, I'll speak on before I I let the rest of the group talk is, uh, I was really impressed with ASU's wide receivers. Ricky Pearsall did a great job, uh, just with his explosiveness. We saw the speed on a screenplay and then again on a deep pass. So, uh, overall great game for the Sun Devils. Carson, what about you? What are your initial takeaways?
3: Yeah, I think that Jacob touched on some of the key points there. To me, unequivocally, the strongest performance of the year offensively for ASU. And really, the key was that one stat he mentioned. Five of ASU's six longest plays from scrimmage on the year came in this one game. You could isolate from before this one. Their only really major passing play, and it was that 58-yard bomb to Andre Johnson that ended up falling just short of being a touchdown. In this game, there were several plays of a similar caliber, and I think that part of that was capitalizing on a very aggressive UCLA defense that left itself without a deep safety on several occasions, but the receivers still had to go out there and win their one-on-one matchups, and Jaden Daniels still had to go out there and make those throws. And that was really the area of this offense that had been in question. Jaden Daniels has been accurate and has been efficient on the year. The run game, obviously, has been very, very strong. But those big chunk passing plays had kind of been lacking. And when Jaden Daniels has over 200 yards at the half and has barely attempted 10 passes, that's very telling about the kind of success that they were able to find there. So I thought Pearsall, as Jacob said, was exceptional. We saw him lined up not just in the slot, but as an outside guy as well. Did some damage after the catch on a screenplay, but also was able to get himself open deep downfield, just all around, I would say continues to sort of separate as the most impressive receiver on this ASU team probably, but then Jordan Porter shows his ability as a deep threat and Curtis Hodges continues to impress as a receiving tight end, a former receiver, but athletically is just dynamic. And we have seen him have really a majority of his catches come as big plays This one was no exception. Last year, he had three catches, but for 98 yards. This year, he's averaging over 22 yards per reception. So that's a very distinct kind of weapon to have at the tight end spot. So all of that, to me, again, part of it was probably enabled by UCLA gambling so much. But nevertheless, a standout performance from ASU's offense, particularly just as far as the explosiveness, although they were able to run the ball pretty well also, but you really expect that.
0: And lastly, we'll go to you, Chris. What were your initial takeaways from this one?
2: Well, look, I didn't predict ASU would win the game, but I'm also not surprised necessarily by the outcome. I thought there was a great range of variance in what could unfold in this game. We knew that UCLA had probably the most gambling defense in the conference. And when that is the case, it's always a possibility that that could look great or that could get really exposed and look quite bad. And it just so happened that ASU hit on some shot plays that really left the Bruins reeling in that second quarter, right? Uh, the Jordan Porter pass over the top from the slot where UCLA couldn't check him as well. Uh, then the Pierce all happens on a screen. At that point, you have UCLA getting bodied vertically, getting bodied out on the perimeter. Uh, It it has them on their heels. I just didn't think it would happen that early and that successfully. I knew that if it did kind of happen, the game would unravel a little bit and and sort of, sort of uh, get looser. And um, I, but the thing that surprised me for sure was UCLA, not scoring in the second half. Uh, That was completely unexpected after what we saw in uh, the first half of the game, uh, UCLA ran the ball reasonably well. Dorian Thompson Robinson did his thing. They clearly uh, hit their two top targets, Phillips and Dulcich, a uh, pretty decent amount. And ASU made some very good strategic adjustments. They came out with their base defense 4 3 4, which was not the look that they gave the same UCLA team, basically, the, the same offense, I should say, last year in Tempe when they played mostly nickel. Um, but then, what I think fans saw was that Deandre Pierce struggled against Phillips in the slot. He scored a touchdown. He had a couple other nice plays and then ASU uh, went to a, a look that we haven't seen all season. They took one of their safeties off the field, went to a single safety look, kept the three linebackers, but they added to Marcus Davis and they moved chase Lucas to the slot. Didn't work out right away. Chase Lucas was beaten on a double move by Phillips and then he had a pass interference, but Over the long run, some of these changes that ASU made did start to really have a great effect and they weren't quote-unquote second-half adjustments, which a lot of media people tend to talk about as something that you wait to adjust at halftime. By then, you already could be way, way out of the game. ASU was doing this in real time, adjusting to what was happening on a series series basis. And I think Antonio Pierce did a really great job in that regard that enabled uh, them to be successful. So really... What it comes down to is ASU outcoached UC- UCLA in this game. They had better game plans, and then their players executed the game plans very effectively on offense and defense when you look at the totality of the product on the field.
0: Yeah, you touched on it a little bit there in terms of shutting out UCLA in the second half, but this game at the beginning, it started off, it didn't really look like the high-scoring game that it ended up becoming. So, Chris, can you maybe briefly just kind of walk us through how the game unfolded from beginning to end,
2: right? So I, I thought that there would be a lot more of a, a longer feeling out process in this game. The first quarter uh, was very slow. What was it, three to three or something like that? And there was ASU had like nine plays from scrimmage or something. And we have seen these slow starts from ASU all season on the offensive side of the ball, right? So I sort of anticipated. Going on the road, maybe there'd be some of these operational issues. They actually had those again, right? Uh, they, they, um, you know, the two third downs, including after UCLA gave the ball away inside their own deep in their own territory, then ASU gets it, you know, goes deep into the, the one yard line or whatever. Then they, they put uh train him into the sparky formation and he, him, him clapping and everyone else all starting, you know, there was a miscommunication there. Uh, they had the earlier one that, that kept UCLA, uh, on, on the field uh, when they went for it on fourth and one after the, the, the ASU having, you know, too many men on the field on special teams. So there, there were these, you know, things that we saw against BYU. It just so happened that there ended up being a lot fewer of them in the game than in the second quarter. As I mentioned, UCLA playing zero coverage, basically blitzing everyone, got totally burned on the pierce screen, which really should have only been like a five yard gain or something like that. They were not gambling so aggressively. And then they showed blitz when ASU uh, um, went to a five wide for the first time in the game with train them out on the perimeter. And they didn't understand that uh, there were not going to be crossing uh, routes when they drop these linebackers after showing this, this heavy blitz and and trying to, Get Jane Daniels to make a mistake, but he clearly they were in the wrong play for what ASU ended up running, and Pearsall ran the the slant and go route that just beat the UCLA safety. the The Bruins safeties have been playing really poorly this season, and then UCLA's defensive coordinator puts them in even uh, you know bad situations for how well they're playing, where there's no protection. And uh, I think that that just totally changed the tenure of the game. And um, the, the Rashad White touchdown in the third quarter, that was pure improvisation. Um, and then they went for two, they, they go up nine. Um, you know, we talked in the car ride after the game that that actually kind of made sense, even though it was early in the third, that you would uh, that you would do that uh, because you know, there's really kind of no harm, no foul at, at UCLA. If you don't get it, UCLA is probably just going to PAT, and then you're tied. But, um, yeah, I just thought that that you know uh, the defensive changes that ASU made uh, they worked pretty effectively, even though the Bruins had a lot of yards. And, uh, and Zach Hill schemed and called an extremely good game.
0: A good game for ASU that was kind of briefly walking through how it unfolded. Let's now get into some of the more specifics. We'll start with the offense, and we'll start specifically with the passing game. It was a statement game from Jaden Daniels. He was 13 of 19 for 287 yards and two touchdowns. And his wide receiving core was without Johnny Wilson, out with that hamstring injury. Ricky Pearsall really stepped up and probably was the star of the bunch. But Jacob, what were your thoughts on the passing game and Jaden Daniels' performance?
1: Yeah, Ethan, I think that this was the step that we on our podcast have been talking about ASU needing to take for so long. Jaden seemed to have a better connection with his receivers, particularly Ricky Pearsall, than he's had in any other game so far this year. And that really, that really shined through in terms of his ability to connect with guys on the deeper routes Uh, than he had in other points so far this season. I think that Zach Hill has talked to us and and all the media on several occasions saying basically that ASU's offense now is predicated on its ability to hit on shot plays. And Jaden Daniels was able to do that with Curtis Hodges, with Jordan Porter, uh, with with Ricky Pearsaw, as we've mentioned now a couple times. So this was kind of an opening up of the offense in a way that we haven't really seen before, particularly with the passing game. And I think that as you get deeper and deeper into conference play, that's going to be of particular importance. So this was a huge step for the Sun Devils against a secondary that might not be as strong as they'll face moving forward here, but but definitely a big step.
3: I agree. And I think that this has been an X factor that we've touched on. And one of their goals heading into the year was that they wanted to pass on 55% of downs. The one component that I do think was pretty crucial to enabling this success was the play of the offensive line because again this is a crazy aggressive defense that'll blitz corners willy-nilly and just does things that other teams don't do and yet Jaden Daniels was not regularly subjected to a lot of pressure he was not hit in this game much less sacked and I just thought was able to remain composed and make the good decisions that he had to and then was accurate and made a lot of throws on the money. And again, the receivers got open, guys made plays on the perimeter, people blocked well on the perimeter too. That Ricky Pearsall play, Jalen Conyers really opened that up and allowed him to end up taking that for a long, long touchdown. So it was kind of like everything was just gelling. Guys were blocking well on the line, blocking well on the perimeter. Receivers were getting open, making plays after the catch. Jaden was composed, but I thought also, when he had to made some good plays with his feet was able to evade pressure in the few situations where he did face it. So all around, if ASU was able to throw the ball like this, that's a legitimate PAC 12 contender. And that's just an all around offense that again, we had seen the development and the progression, but this was a different level. And sure UCLA had allowed, I believe it was the fifth most passing yards per game in, D one college football before this game, or I should say the FBS, but still to do this matters. And I think that it showed a lot about what this group could ultimately be. If they can sustain that.
2: Yeah, I agree. I would just say that we knew that UCLA was susceptible to this happening, but ASU hadn't shown that it could do it all season, including against some worse opponents, right? And that's what made me sort of skeptical about their ability to do so on the road, especially in the first half of the game. Uh, And if ASU did not hit on some of those big plays, that's what allows the Bruins to pin their ears back and just keep dialing up the pressure more and more and more. And then all of a sudden you get tight and you start struggling. Because remember, UCLA's run defense was the best in the pac 12. And the way that that happened is because of how much run blitzing they brought on early downs. So if AS AS, what enabled ASU to run the ball was how they hit on those shot plays and got the ball in the perimeter in the screen game. And as Carson was saying, when, when Johnny Wilson, who is the number one blocking wide receiver in power five football by pro football focus is, not playing, and they don't find that out until Thursday. Zach Hill said that they had to re personnel everything that they were doing. Well, that means that now Ricky Pearsall is playing in a different role. He's on the field when they're in their 12 personnel looks. Uh, some other guys are now playing a lot who weren't playing before, like Jalen Conyers is getting all these reps. He has a great drive block on the Ricky Pearsall screen that goes for a touchdown. And that gives you confidence that you have the ability and maybe even to see things that you weren't looking at before, such as the big play capability of what Pearsall can be in other places within the offense that then allows you to feel confident in doing those things in further games to continue to expand, to use these guys in in, in some different ways. And what it did in this game was once that happened, UCLA became a lot more docile and compliant. And then we saw uh, Chip Traynham pounding in the in the run game uh, in some of these counters, and getting up in the gaps, and then you can sort of have that change of pace thing between uh, Traynham and that improvisational beauty of a Rashad White. And ASU ended up having a better run game than UCLA very clearly when you look at it on a yards per rush basis. And I thought that the winner of that. And then whether or not who would hit more big plays in the passing game was ultimately going to determine the winner of this game. And that's uh, very much what happened because ASU won both of those categories uh, very easily. You
0: just touched on it, Chris, but we'll speak a little bit more on that rushing game. Diamante Trinum. Returned from injury. He had the most attempts out at of anyone with 16, got a touchdown as well. His average wasn't quite as good as Rashad's White's, but the one two punch was back. Jacob, what did you see from that rushing attack from ASU in terms of Diamante Trainum being back and kind of how he affected that role?
1: Yeah, it, it, t- having Trainum back is so critical for this ASU offense. Just his ability to be that power rusher who takes. The inside rush and just kind of shoves it down a defense's throat is so important in terms of the ASU offense's ability to open up the rest of its playbook. And particularly, by the way, to open up room for Rashad White, who, you know, these two guys come into the game and they offer such a change of pace from each other that it really is this fastball, curveball style change. And it's very difficult for defenses to key in on. Now, I would add to this conversation about ASU's run game just that ASU's offensive line was particularly impressive uh, against UCLA. ASU's offensive line has been particularly impressive in, in, I would say, almost every single one of its games, but especially against the Bruins, who ranked fifth in the country in rush defense coming into the game. Uh, Ladarius Henderson was the Pac-12 offensive lineman of the week. He was fantastic. And I think that that alone is a great example of just the growth that ASU has had up front, and Herm Edwards touched on that during his press conference on Monday, ASU has stepped up in a big way on its offensive line. Henderson, West, Ben Scott, all of whom were recruited by ASU, uh, you know, they've shown a lot of growth, and then they have Henry Hattis and Kellen Deesh, uh, two transfers who played quite well too. So you know, as much as Trainum and Rashad White were very good and a key part in ASU's ability to rush for 172 yards against a defense that was not expected to allow that much rushing – Uh, I think ASU's offensive line is is due as much credit and an equally impressive performance by those guys as well.
3: Yeah, and it is worth noting that this was a top-five run defense by yards allowed in the FBS in UCLA. They were letting up 64 yards a game. So to go out there and produce on the ground with 172 yards and three touchdowns on 5.4 yards a carry like ASU did, again, you come to expect that raw production from them week in and week out but this is a different level of opponent against the run based on what their resume had been. And I think that absolutely getting him back very valuable. I also think that Rashad white had had a couple of not overly impressive weeks by his standards, where you just saw he wasn't being as efficient on the ground. And maybe this wasn't his best overall game, although he does continue to get involved as a receiver, which is very valuable, but the one explosive play that he did have, the 49-yard touchdown run, to me, was right up there for the most impressive play that ASU has had offensively all year. And you saw his elusiveness where he's hitting a spin move, he makes a couple guys miss, and then you saw his speed down the field, which obviously he is well known for, and that's what allows him to have that thunder and lightning dynamic. So, I thought both running backs, all in all, not their flashiest, most outstanding games, but did what had to be done. And the crazy part about this is... You get this kind of production without Daniel Nagata seeing the field. And Daniel Nagata is averaging 6.8 yards a carry and had been really impressive in Chip Tranum's absence. So, again, there is just an exceptional depth of quality players in this running back room and this run game. When you can do this against UCLA and they're passing the ball like that, again, it's just a very very high offensive ceiling. And the run game is ultimately fundamental and is going to be the thing in most matchups that drives that because you load up the box, those shot plays become all that much more attainable. And that's what these guys in the backfield help establish.
2: And the thing that really sets your run game in motion and gives you the dynamic ability is what you can do with your offensive line and your blocking overall up front. So just, to put an exclamation mark on what jacob was saying earlier we've seen this counter type of a play be quite successful for asu consistently through this season but most teams uh they only will run it with the you know two or maybe three guys that they use as pullers okay we've seen asu use all of its linemen in pulling as part of their counter, uh, their power run game, if you will. Okay. In this game, they ran Ben Scott and Henry Hattis pulling uh, guard tackle power right to left. Okay. We've seen the uh, Darius Henderson and Kellen Deesh uh, do power uh, a, a counter run from left to right. We've seen center tackle power with Donovan West and one of the tackles pulling around. So, and then what they do on top of that is they'll use any of their uh, tight ends, Curtis Hodges, uh, their fullback Case Hatch, uh, John Stivers, to, uh, as an additional guy in F power or Y power uh, working with one of the linemen. And they can run it in multiple ways. And so they force opponents not only to prepare for all of that, but then have to sort of figure out how they're going to counter that. And then ASU also runs, uh, um, you know, like in this game, they, 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 they put formation strength into the boundary with tight ends, and then they ran uh, not just counter, work in that direction, but they ran zone runs into the boundary. In fact, the, the, the white touchdown was supposed to be a zone run into the boundary, and he cut it short, spun, and there was nobody left on the backside of it which then enabled him to run for the for for that touchdown, and so yes, Trey and White, super talented, uh, really great complementary style running backs who are really good. But that that's not worth a hill of beans if you don't have good protection, blocking, uh, protection and blocking to where you have the ability to uh, uh, beat teams in a variety of ways. Right, getting the ball on the perimeter getting the ball vertically and getting the ball uh, anywhere that you want to hit run, run games from inside run, outside zone, stretch, any kind of power concept counters. And ASU's got all that. And that's one of the reasons when you look at this team that you go, well, what is their weakness if they're able to hit on some of these shot plays now? And you can make a pretty good case that they don't have any glaring weakness if they're able to get that going with any type of consistency.
0: Yeah. And ASU's offense really exploded in this game against UCLA. On the other side, though, we'll go over to the defense. The defense played well in the first half and then really turned it on in the second half, shut down UCLA for no points. As Chris talked about a little bit earlier, we'll first talk about the past defense there without Evan Fields for this game out for an, with an injury. So, the pass defense stopped Dorian Thompson-Robinson for a good amount. There was a touchdown right at the beginning of the second quarter. Uh, they're tight Greg Dulcich as well, had a pretty big day himself. But, Jacob, what did you see from the
1: pass defense in this game against UCLA throughout the whole game? You mentioned it. Without Evan Fields, this is the fifth consecutive game in five games this year that ASU has not had every single member of its secondary available to it. You know, we, we saw ASU play without Tamarcus Davis, then without Chase Lucas, and now without Evan Fields, and still the unit was able to perform quite well. Uh, Kiwan Markham, who started in place of Evan Fields, was reasonably solid to start the game. Uh, later on, it was T. Lee who got a couple of reps and played well too. But I think what was most interesting about ASU's past defense in this game is that we saw them go to a single high safety look for the first time this year. Uh, they have not done that, particularly because they've had DeAndre Pierce and Evan Fields available to them. But against the Bruins, they had DeAndre Pierce playing as a single high safety. They had Chase Lucas in the slot against uh, Phillips, and they, they attempted to stop UCLA that way. And for the most part, it worked. Uh, Phillips was able to break off a couple bigger plays. Uh, and then they also had some trouble with Dulcich, the tight end, uh, out of that single high safety look. But overall it was quite successful. And ASU continues to lead the Pac-12 in passing yards allowed per game. It's it's in the very low 140s, if I remember correctly. And this was just another game where it was proven that ASU's depth in its secondary is quite effective. And, in, and more than that, ASU was able to use that depth in a look that it hasn't used so far this season with that single high safety look to a very successful degree. So I think the biggest takeaway from, from this game in terms of pass defense is just that ASU is able to change things up in its secondary when it has to and contend with a good team. Dorian Thompson Robinson, like we said in our preview podcast is a solid passing quarterback. He's not a mind blowing quarterback, but he's good. And, you know, ASU had to be very conscious of his ability to run UCLA's ability to use its running backs and then still be able to play good pass defense. And it really did do that. So, Uh, I think it was a really impressive game, all things considered. I agree, and I think
3: that we absolutely saw improvement as this game went along because uh, UCLA was able to explode in some stretches early on in the first half. They ended the period with 280 total yards, and 121 of those came on the ground, 159 through the air. There were a couple situations in which Dulcich was able to take advantage of lapses in coverage or beat his man and found himself running really with a decent amount of field around him. But for the most part, ASU was able to limit UCLA's success through the air, again, primarily to the early stages of the game. And they were able to keep Dorian Thompson-Robinson from finding a whole bunch of targets and getting a bunch of those guys in rhythm. And UCLA has been dependent on Dulcich and Phillips' somewhat heavily throughout the year, but still valuable. And although Dulcich did have a very big game, ASU has had to deal with a few pass-catching tight ends, and that will continue to be something that obviously they'll have to do because that's just a valuable part of many offenses. But I don't know if they'll face another challenge quite like Dulcich, because again, this was an all-pack 12 guy last year and a pretty distinct talent at the position. So I thought they really did batten down the hatches as as this game went along. It's not like they shut out this UCLA offense. Even in the second half, the Bruins still ended up with 432 yards of offense, and they had moderate efficiency with the plays that they did have. But this is a really, really good offense. One of the best in the Pac-12. And we knew that UCLA could find success on the ground, through the air, with DTR as a runner, as a scrambler, or out of options. And so that's a very distinct and significant challenge. And ASU was able to kind of bend and not break in some spots. And obviously the biggest play of the day is getting that stop on fourth down to keep their nine point advantage when UCLA had driven all the way down to ASU's two yard line. That's the kind of thing we're sure. Maybe in a normal situation they don't have a second half shutout because of that because UCLA could just take the field goal or whatever. Maybe they still should have, honestly. Probably they still should have to make it a one-possession game and stay in it. But regardless, an impressive showing overall. They made progress. And sure, they let up a lot of yardage, but it came against a really good offense that was number 26 in the country in scoring. And overall, I thought that they held up to the challenge pretty well.
2: Yeah, you mentioned that fourth down, but I think UCLA overall was only two of five on fourth downs. So that think about having three of your series end on, on turnover on downs in a game like this, that's a lot, right? I don't know how many series UCLA had in the game was probably not more than like 12 or something. So um, yeah, UCLA was nine of 20 on third downs. That's good. Right. They just, they, they got into some fourth down situations, Chip Kelly's topic, I was going to go for those. Not, they weren't successful. Uh, I, I give a lot of credit to, to ASU's sort of adjustments and its overall scheme. Uh, one of the things we know is a problem with UCLA is they, they uh, um, get you into sort of being stretched out uh, to where you have to guard four wideouts, including Dulcich, who functions a lot like a wide receiver. And then they run the ball effectively without a tight end or a fullback in the box. Um, and ASU found a way to sort of bridge the gap of being able to cover Dulcich and Phillips on the perimeter while not going to six-man boxes by taking a safety off the field and putting an extra defensive back on the field at times. That was a really big solve, I think, that worked. Uh, And, um, you know, uh, beyond that, I I would say uh, one of the things that stood out to me quite a bit was just how much youth that ASU has relied on defensively for how much of a veteran defense that it actually is right because in this game when you have uh tyler johnson not starting because he didn't practice all week due to an undisclosed injury and he was limited in the game well now anthony cooper gets his first start he had a great game not only was it his first start it was his best performance right uh key markham is out there playing at safety uh in the biggest game of his career by far because evan fields doesn't play. Then ASU brings in T. Lee in the second half, and he's playing a lot in a in, in, in safety role when ASU gives up no points that half. You had Jordan Clark making a big stop, you know, uh, uh, that um, you know, what played a key role in that game, along with the Gentry stop on the fourth down. So you have a bunch of ASU players who are young guys who are impacting the game. Even Mason Williams. Had a, a couple of nice plays when he came in, including a, a, a past offended, right? And then the last thing I want to say is it's really, um, you know, it's unheralded, but DJ Davidson is a man. Like he's a man, okay? I thought at one point in the game that uh, a grizzly bear snuck into DJ Davidson's jersey and the helmet. I was out there mauling around the center. The center was getting ragdolled like I've never seen. And then you look and you see D.J. Davidson chasing down one of UCLA's running backs from behind and making a tackle. I mean, he was incredible in that game. And not just did he make a tackle, but UCLA's running back, Zach Charbonnet, he's been bouncing off of guys all over the place like a pinball game this season. And ASU was bringing down ucla's running backs they were tackling you know tackling is this thing where you notice it when people aren't doing it right right but then when everybody's doing it right you don't really talk about it all that much because you go oh yeah well he was supposed to make those tackles okay but ucla they got some hard-nosed dudes right in the football and asu brought those guys down darian butler had a really good game Kyle Soli had 13 tackles he was around the football all of the time. And Merlin Robertson, I thought, had one of his better games. So it was a bridging of veterans and some young key players that stepped up and made plays at opportunistic times that enabled ASU to do what it, do what it did in that game, especially in the second half.
0: Yeah. And you just touched on it a little bit in terms of there was a limited Tyler Johnson, the defensive line were already already without Jermaine Lole, which was a big loss. We talked about the youth. They held up pretty strong in the run game. Once again, another strong rushing attack. And once again, another strong running quarterback in Dorian Thompson Robinson. You could say that they maybe struggled a little bit with Dorian Thompson Robinson, given that he had 117 yards on the ground for them. But Jacob, touch a little bit on this run game from ASU, and you can't really say they struggled given they shut out uh, UCLA in the second half and only allowed one touchdown on the ground.
1: Yeah, it was a a very solid performance in terms of bottling up UCLA's run game. And we knew going into it that UCLA had two running backs, Zach Charbonnet and Britton Brown, who posed a serious threat to Arizona State. And Chris said it, I think I said it, in our preview podcast, a key to victory for the Sun Devils was going to be stopping the run, and they were able to do that, and it pretty much directly led to a victory. Uh, You know, you look at the stats, ASU did a very good job. 51 total rushes from UCLA for 197 yards. uh, That's 3.9 yards per carry. They scored just one touchdown, like you said. Uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson led the team with 93 total rushing yards, and he was actually able to average 5.2 yards per carry, So if you're going to be nitpicky, I guess that that's probably the biggest area of weakness for ASU was just limiting Dorian Thompson Robinson on the ground. But even that statement is not totally true. I don't know that he made a significant enough impact in this game with his feet for it to really be an issue. And it's the first time I think that we've seen this season that ASU put together a run defense that was so solid, it left uh, left UCLA with almost no options. So Uh, This was a really impressive game. I know that ASU's run defense has been good, but this this game is a standout to me so far, uh, just in the way that it bottled up three really good players uh, with their feet. Obviously, the two running backs and Thompson Robinson.
3: The one area where I might disagree just slightly is I did think that DTR, DTR gave them some significant trouble, and that ultimate rushing number is a bit deceptive to me because that's going to include sack yardage. Overall, he was above eight yards per attempt on the day and well over 100 yards, again, if you take away those sacks. And ASU was able to generate pressure pretty consistently in this game, and their defensive front, that has been a strength of theirs for some time. And they ended up with four sacks, but there were also a lot of spots in where they got pressure and yet they couldn't get home. And Thompson Robinson, especially in that first half was able to leak out and make plays with his feet and make guys miss. So I thought that there were stretches where that was the scariest part of UCLA's offense. No question. So the scrambling quarterback dilemma is always going to be challenging, especially with a player of that caliber athletically. It's something that ASU has faced several times over now. This to me, was probably the most they've struggled with it, but also clearly the best option who they have faced in that respect. But overall, I think absolutely they did a good job on the running backs here, and that was very valuable. This is an excellent rushing attack. They averaged 200 yards a game on the ground coming into this one, so that's significant. But I do think that DTR did give them a little bit trouble, and I think that they were probably pretty scared of him for brief stretches at the very least in this game.
2: Yeah, he is difficult to contend with, right? Uh, because you, you you play man coverage on any of these down or distances, and then you leave a seam, any crease for him. Remember the one time he like ducked under Tyler Johnson's arm and he bolted upfield and then he tried to jump over someone. I mean, he's, he's – he's, that guy, is, he does some stuff. And so – that was probably the biggest challenge ASU is going to face in, in, in terms of someone that can beat you with his arm or his legs and have someone like Chip Kelly scheming for him to be able to get him into some space on some bootlegs, have some zone reads, some RPO actions. Uh, he didn't really beat ASU that much on design runs. That's to me is what the thing that would have been really alarming is if, if ASU's crashing down, he's pulling the ball around the end, and you're undisciplined and, and bad stuff's going on. It was really more of the improvisational type runs, the unannounced plays. I don't think you can limit him a lot more than ASU did, probably without giving up something else, right? You could maybe keep somebody else down there to spy on him, but now you got even more vulnerability to some of the stuff in the passing game. And yeah, ASU got beat on a, a couple of Y crosses working across the field, and there was the double moves. Uh, but it, he wasn't throwing the ball all, all over the yard, right? Let's put it that way. And so ultimately, given the, the versatility of the threat of what UCLA can do offensively, you got to say that the first half, maybe give him a C-plus ASU, C, C-plus, Second half, you got to give them an A-minus at a minimum because they did sort of resolve some of the bigger things. And then as ASU took command of the game and UCLA had a greater sort of air of desperation about itself and what it was trying to do offensively, it actually further hurt their efficiency and their ability to move the ball and sustain any drives. And there again, that's the value of playing from ahead and not from behind, which ASU was able to do in this game.
0: A strong performance from the defense, as you guys just talked about. We'll move on over to the special teams. It was a clean day for Christian Deos. He was 100% with all the kicks that he took, but it was a rough day for DJ Taylor. It was also a quieter day from Eddie Ciaplitsky. Jacob, what are your takeaways? Is there any reason to worry from any of these performances in the special teams?
1: As it pertains to Taylor, again, I don't think that worry is the correct word. I think that this was a bad performance for sure. Uh, Herm Edwards had said that it was a bad performance, but it's one that he just wants Taylor to learn from. And I think that that is probably the best way to look at this, is that this is a learning chance for Taylor. Um, That being said, it was a very poor game for him. He took two kicks out of the end zone that he definitely should not have. uh, Easy touchback situations, and he ended up costing his team yards. Uh, and then the, the standout play is obviously the punt uh, at the end of the second quarter when he decided to field a bouncing ball. Uh, it hit him. He couldn't corral it, fumble, and UCLA recovers and gets pretty. It gets a free field goal to go into halftime. So that can't happen. Uh, Chris, you you had said several times that it, you know you don't even need to send a punt return out punt returner out there in that scenario. Uh, you can send eleven guys towards the punter and just let the ball do whatever it's going to do and take it into halftime. So. Uh, he needs to learn from these kinds of things. That being said, though, ASU's special teams performance this season so far has been fairly costly uh, on, on kick and punt return. Uh, penalties have been a problem. It was again against UCLA uh, on the drive before Taylor's fumble and correct me if I'm wrong, remembering the, the exact sequence here, but the drive before Taylor fumbled uh, ASU had an illegal substitution penalty on a fourth and six round midfield. It gave UCLA a fourth and one uh, that they were able to convert, and then they went on to kick another field goal. So that's six points and two drives directly related to ASU's punt return teams, and that's a big problem. Uh, that's a thing that has to be cleaned up, and we talked about it last week too, where you know it, it's not just penalties that are taking away that, that are giving teams yards, it's penalties on special teams that could be taking away big returns. And we haven't seen that happen necessarily yet in terms of having to bring a touchdown from Taylor back. But, but these are things that ASU is going to have to be aware of and rapidly correct as it gets deeper into the season. Uh, and then, I, I, you know, as far as Chaplitsky goes, it, it was a pretty, you know, poor day, I would say. Uh, one punt appeared to be tipped, although I'm not 100% sure that it was touched. It looked like it might have been. Uh, his, his average was was fairly low on the day. Uh, didn't have any kicks that were downed inside the 20. So, uh, you know, not a great day, but I think that we've seen from Chaplitsky that he's capable of a lot more. So to answer your question one more time, no, I do not think that this is a, a need to worry about ASU special teams, but there are definitely things that need to be corrected.
3: I think Jacob correctly identified a lot of stuff there and that Chaplitsky is allowed to have one-off week when he's been so consistently good up to this point. And really, neither kicking nor punting has been the concern for this team since Zendejas took over. There was that rough opening week showing from Logan Tyler. But it has been all about the return game. And it has been pre-snap penalties with the illegal substitution. It has been penalties, lots of holds, illegal blocks in the back. Again, just costly stuff that allows the offense to stay on the field or negates big returns that you just can't tolerate. I do think the DJ Taylor thing is somewhat significant just because as far as skill, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this guy probably is a case for, at his position, the best player on the team. Like he may be a better returner than anybody else on ASU is at their respective position. The issue is we have seen teams try to avoid him getting the ball in whatever way possible. We've seen teams squib. We've seen teams kick to the up man. And I feel like, especially given that he missed time with injury. We saw sort of the cumulative desire to go out there and make plays in this one, especially in a big time game. And it hurt his team where he doesn't take a kick past the 17. And he has that fumble on just an egregiously bad decision where not only does he not need to field that ball, it's a tough ball to field coming off of a short hop and the coverage is bearing down on him quickly. So we saw the signs of that even before he actually had any of those negative plays. There was a kickoff early in the game where he caught with his back foot basically just inside the end zone. And he kind of spiked the ball in frustration because clearly he wanted to go out and make a play. So not every team is necessarily going to have a kicker who can just boot the ball deep into the end zone every time out. But I do think that unless that is corrected, unless this becomes a teachable moment, as Herm Edwards said, and he ended up being replaced by, uh, by LV Bunkley Shelton on a later punt return, unless Taylor is able to be more selective and smarter about when he takes the ball out. Some teams that do have those kickers with booming legs may have just found their roadmap because now you don't have to sacrifice letting ASU get the ball on the 35. You just kick the ball out of the end zone or you kick the ball very deep into the end zone. And that is a way to limit DJ Taylor or to force him into mistakes even. Whereas I don't think that we knew that that was an option previously. Now, I think that he probably is going to learn because this was an ugly game and he's a very talented player at his position. And I think that will be a point of emphasis, but like Jacob said, there are just some things that need to be cleaned up. Even with the bright spot of this unit, there are definitely things that have to be refined and improved upon going forward.
2: And I, I would say, Jacob, I think you, you put the emphasis on the, the Chaplitsky performance a little bit off of where I would say, which is, it, it, I think it, that ball was, You know, a fingertip got it, but that means that it was an inch away from that ball going the other direction, right? Backwards. And even Chaplitsky, he turned around after he punted that ball because he thought it was blocked and went the other direction. And that's not on him, right? He just did his normal punt. That is another special teams failing that ASU had that nearly, that was in the third quarter when ASU had a lot of things going its direction. Right, that had the ability to be a huge momentum changer. I believe in that game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's I think that's what it was. And so, had that had that been blocked, uh, not that long after the two mistakes in the second quarter, including that gave UCLA six points, including the DJ Taylor mistake just before halftime, that would have had the net effect of having it look like ASU special teams were off the rails at that point. Right, and those are the things that really can't happen because they haven't been problematic for ASU that much in recent years. Uh, they have had solid punting, you know, solid kicking. Their, their coverage and return units have been pretty good. DJ Taylor showed last year that he has the ability to be, and, and earlier this year, the ability to be the best return man in the conference. But like Carson said, he was clearly extremely frustrated with his inability to impact the game when he was catching the ball nine yards deep in the end zone or the one that went over uh, his head. And if you're Sean Slocum, you have to identify that and you, you don't even put him out there at the end of the half. Why, why do you need a punt returner with 10 seconds left? Everything that's happened, what the, the odds of him returning the ball for a touchdown are greater than the odds of a mistake. Of course not. Anybody can figure that out, right? He doesn't have any returns for a touchdown this year, and he's already taken the ball out of the end zone nine yards deep, including on the very first kickoff of the game when he only got back to the, the what, the 12 or the 14-yard line, right? So that is mostly coaching, but it is also a mistake of D.J. Taylor that he has to learn from. It's both of those things. It's not an either-or proposition, right? And yes, ASU didn't have the costly block-in-the-back block penalties in this game or anything like that, but it also didn't really have the opportunity to have those types of, 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 of plays. And they did have the 12 men on the field, right, which that shouldn't happen. Uh, so there's still a lot of stuff that has to be done to clean up their special teams, and there is a possibility for this costing ASU a game, and that just shouldn't happen uh as you can't afford for that to happen let me let me state it that way
1: chris before before we move on can i just add though you 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 mentioned about chaplitsky he also didn't have a a very good game and i'll point to one of his punts in particular
2: he can stipulate to that it should have been inside the 20 it was at the 25 we know yeah Yeah.
1: that, that's, that's all I was going to say. I, I think that there's you know there's, there's something to be said that he, he wasn't perfect either. I mean, there, that, that one play was not his fault, but I, I also was more pointing to just the the overall performance by him was also not his best at all.
2: 100% I hear you, but having the ball at the 25 versus inside the 20 is a much smaller thing than being an inch away from having your punt go backwards that ended up going 27 yards or something like that because it was partially blocked.
0: And there was seems to be, there were a little bit of struggles uh, in special teams, but either way, offense, defense, and special teams alike all got the win. ASU with the win over, at the time, number 20 UCLA, now pushes them to number 22 in the AP poll. And ASU is now the overwhelming favorite in ESPN's FPI to win the South and have a 29.4% chance to win the whole conference. So, Jacob, we'll go to you first. What does this do for
1: ASU's positioning in the Pac-12 South? This was a huge win, and, and I tweeted something about it immediately after the game ended. This, this win, in my opinion, puts ASU in the pole position to win the South. And do I understand that it is really early with regard to conference play, and there's still a lot left to go and a lot to be decided? Absolutely. I, I, I 100% recognize that. But I think that if ASU wants to win the South, meaning it's going to clean up the mistakes, it's going to limit the amount of penalties, it continues to fire the way it did in its passing game, the run game continues, the defense stays strong. These are the things that ASU is completely capable of, in my opinion. And if it delivers on that, I think that it can win the South. So I think this is the kind of win that, that catapulted ASU above UCLA. Uh, we had several stories on the site that I think correctly stated that UCLA was the favorite to win the Pac-12 South, at least at the time coming into the game. And I do believe that the winner of the contest would be the new favorite or remain the favorite. And ASU was able to take away a victory. So I think that this puts ASU in a fantastic position to win the South. They're clearly capable. Uh, And now it's just going to be a matter of can ASU deliver? And I think it can.
3: Yeah, I think that they are absolutely in an excellent position right now. And this was their toughest conference game on the schedule. Going to a ranked UCLA team that have been so impressive and not just winning, but winning convincingly is big. And now, again, they're a game up on UCLA in that loss column. They're two games up on USC, who I think is no longer really in that conversation. So the stiffest competition down the stretch is going to be UCLA and Utah. And again, ASU now has that advantage over UCLA. They're going to go to Utah in a couple of weeks. That will be a huge game. And There's not many gimme's down the stretch here for ASU this week. They have Stanford after Utah. They have Washington state where they will be heavily favored, but then USC could be scary going to Washington to Oregon state. They're the stronger team in those matchups, but again, you're going on the road and then they have Arizona at home, which is a bit of a different story, but I think that they are in position as Jacob said, I think that they with that win probably prove themselves to be the strongest all around team right now. If they can sustain that level, but it is about staying that level. It's about avoiding the kind of self-inflicted errors that crushed them through the first few weeks. But the talent is there, and they are now, again, in position to capitalize on that because this was a massive, massive game. It's early in the season, sure, but a huge game for giving them that leg up because the margin between them and UCLA could be very slim at the end of the year, and that is significant in creating separation there.
2: There's no way that ASU is not the favorite in the Pac-12 South at this point. Keep in mind, ASU doesn't play Oregon, which is, even with uh, it, its loss to Stanford notwithstanding, the best team in the, the Pac-12 North, I, I think, right? But UCLA plays Oregon. Utah has to play Oregon. USC, it would take a miracle for USC to win the Pac-12 South, and Colorado and Arizona have zero chance to win the Pac-12 South. So when you look at the the overall, you know the schedules moving forward and who has the best path, considering ASU has beaten UCLA, and that means has a tiebreaker over UCLA in head-to-head, right? If ASU can beat Utah in two weeks, week and a half. Well, I, I mean, I think it would take a collapse probably at that point for ASU to not win the South, right? Because they would have to lose like at least like three games probably in, in, in the South uh, or in the Pac-12, I should say, to not win the division at that point. And I just think when you look at it, how many games is ASU a, an underdog in or a clear underdog in of its remaining games, right? You can maybe say when they go to, uh, Washington, they're an underdog. Maybe when they go to Oregon State, they're an underdog. But the ASU play, hosts Washington State and Arizona. Those are almost gimme wins at this point. Those are the easiest games you could play in, in the Pac-12. ASU's getting both of those at home, right? So it's hard to see ASU not being at least, in my opinion, like a 6-3. and three. Anything worse than 6-3 and three at this point for ASU would be a really bad outcome. Given that it starts two and zero, and what it has left on the table at this point, so and six and three probably should at least tie for uh, the division lead. I'm guessing, unless unless Utah or, or UCLA do something that I'm not really expecting, and somehow end up at seven and two. So ASU is in a really really great position. If it if ASU wins the next two games, oh boy, I think it's like a coronation moving into the second half of, of, of the schedule. And, and But it's like Herm Edwards said, you beat UCLA, now all of a sudden the next game carries an equivalent or greater significance and so on and so forth. And we're at a place now where we're going to be talking about that for the next two months.
0: And whether people believe you guys in saying they're in full position to win the Pac-12 South or not, it was no doubt a huge win over UCLA at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. On the road, they played UCLA a 42-23 to win. If you want... Any more about this matchup against UCLA, look out for the upon further review and 10 takeaways on the site and board. And as we look forward to ASU's matchup against Stanford that we just touched on on Friday, make sure to take a look at the first look written by Jacob that is on the site currently. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can go on the site and check that out to check what Stanford is about. Looking forward to that game on Friday. But for now, this is it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Jacob Rudner, Chris Cartman, Carson Brever, I'm Ethan Ryder. We'll see you guys next time.